Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 26, I interview Neil Saligrama, the founder and CEO of Compare and Connect utility comparison and connection company that grew 20% last financial year, doing over $25 million in annual revenue, making it the number six fastest growing new business in Australia. We discuss how Neil went from being a uni student working in a small call centre to running a 24 by 7 global contact centre with 400 plus team members before a sudden exit made him decide to start his own business. We talk about the shock of being a million dollars plus in debt when the market conditions shifted and then digging his way out, turning his failures in the first business to life lessons that enabled his current success and growth. If you are looking to get the best deal on your utilities or disconnect and connect utilities when moving house, check out compareandconnect.com.au. That's C-O-M-P-A-R-E-A-N-D. C-O-N-N-E-C-T dot com dot au. So I'm here with Neil Salagrama, the founder and CEO of Compare and Connect. Welcome to the podcast, Neil. Thank you very much, Derek. Uh, great to be here. That's all right. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Compare and Connect? What did you study? What type of companies were you working in? What sort of roles or job titles? Yeah, sure, Derek. Look, um, I came to Australia as a student. Uh, in 2002, in pursuing uh, um, to pursue my uh, um, higher education, so um, so kind of I'm qualified uh, engineer. Uh, completed my degree out of uh, Bangalore, from south southern part of India. So I came here to do my master. So um, RMIT was the university where I was studying, um, and as part of you know any student to survive, I, I kind of had to work. Uh, so I did, you know, all jobs, you know, doing a bit of cleaning and and telemarketing and stuff. So kind of three months down the line, I found a job where it was a small company and um, it was kind of uh, had a role for me to do some telesales. Um, so I kind of said, you know, it makes sense and I can earn, I can earn, you know, working, you know, 20 hours a week. Um, um, and I joined that company. And whilst kind of I continued studying uh, what I was studying, you know, this company gave me an opportunity at the end of the day to really do well in my job. And that one led to the other. Uh, it was a small company and um, I grew very quickly vertically, you know, learning a lot of roles in that business. So generally when you kind of join a big organisation, um, you kind of, you only learn a part of the process because you know, you can't get through the whole life cycle of what happens in an organization if it's too big. Mm. Uh, I was kind of unknowingly, though, nothing was planned. Um, it, because it was such a small organization, you know, you, you kind of know, okay, well, I'm doing a telesales job and you actually know what your manager is more or less doing. Mm-hmm. I kind of grew pretty well from a telesales person to a team leader and then eventually to, you know, lead a particular uh, a campaign as a campaign manager. So you kind of got an idea of what the revenue, uh, what the expense and, you know, generally what it costs to, um, you know, run a small size call, uh, call center or a contact center, whatever you can call it as. So it was a good, great exposure for me at the early part of my life to understand that part of it. So two years, um, uh, within two years, kind of, there was a great opportunity which kind of led this particular company to offshore a good chunk of work um, um, to to India, mm-hmm. and since I was kind of born raised uh, in India, they said, "Oh, look, you know, you could potentially take this opportunity," which I did, and they set up a you know a, a massive operations out of uh, out of India. Um, so I kind of worked there for you know growing the company from almost nothing to about four hundred staff mm. um, running campaigns for many major Australian. Um, organizations, um, big tier one clients. Um, and that operations then turned into 24 by 7. So we had clients from Australia, we had clients in the US, we had the clients from the UK. So that kind of turned into a 24 by 7 opportunity for me to 
uh, be a part of it. And I kind of grew from almost like an entry job as an executive to a director of, um, of operations within about two years um, time span. So it was a massive quick growth for me to kind of run, you know, go through that journey and be, a, mm. uh, be at that high level. And um, what do you think they saw in you? you? You know, you're a uni student, a lot of uni students work in call centers. Often it's just, you know, a bit of extra money, pay the bills. You know, obviously the company was growing, like you said, there's opportunities, but what stood out, do you think, what did you do or show that the owners thought, yeah, we can give you more responsibility as a, you know, uni student a, and, you know. That's a, that's a great question, Derek. And uh, look, I think I came from a background. So nobody in my family for generations has ever ventured into setting up the business or being entrepreneur. So I come from a very typical middle-class family, which is um, predominantly a risk-averse family. And uh, you know, most of them in my family have done double degree or you know, mm-hmm. the PhDs and masters is kind of a very common um, qualification in my, in my um, family circle. Um, so growing up um, in that family environment for me was to apparently do well and excel in, in whatever I do. Unfortunately, our economic uh, challenges were a bit different. So I graduated in 2001 mm-hmm. and thankfully, you know, um, um, 9-11 happened just after I, you know, graduated out of my engineering college and all jobs were deferred. The economy was in, 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 in very bad situation. Um, so there was no other opportunity. My dad was just on the way out. So he was about to retire from mm-hmm. his uh, banking role over 30 odd years. So being an eldest son, you know, I had to kind of find something where I can earn my own bread and butter and support the family in any shape or form. Mm. So the timing was so bad, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I, I did contemplate writing GRE and GMAT, trying to go out to US or to UK, mm-hmm. but obviously, you know, reading the situation, I kind of said, well, America is ruled out. There's not going to be any mm. opportunity knowing what was going on. And also UK was far too expensive comparing, you know, the rupee conversion to a pound. Mm. So the only realistic option I had was to come to Australia. Mm. And um, so I chose to come here and study. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of hunger in saying, well, I've taken a lot of money from my dad and my my parents who kind of have made savings for many years of their life and potentially putting everything on their only son or the the eldest son. Mm, So I've got mm. siblings and putting all the money on me and saying, hoping that, you know, he'll do well in in his career. So there was a lot of hunger, pressure and trust, um, I suppose, from my parents to say, well, you know, you know, we'll support you the best they can. So when I came here, one of the things for me was, look, I don't want to be, um, I suppose, uh, be a liability on mm. my parents. So I just wanted to do whatever best I can to stand on my own feet and then start supporting them as quickly as I can. So that hunger, I suppose, you know, made me prepare well for any opportunity. I, you know, I did cleaning work mm-hmm. uh, with the same amount of passion as I did telemarketing. Mm. Um, and, and to be honest, you know, being, uh, have done, done the engineering degree, I mean, not that telemarketing or cleaning was the preferred way to do, but I, I knew very clearly that, you know, that I have to respect whatever comes my way, whatever way for me to earn in a legal uh, manner, in, a, in an efficient manner, I should do with full passion. So I did devote myself in doing whatever role I got. And when I saw this company, you know, I did work very hard about, you know, trying to sell the respective services or products, whichever. What was whatever. it, a utility one at the time? Was it? No, actually, those times was, uh, um, this is early 2000s, Derek, and mm-hmm. uh, telco deregulation was um, really attracting a lot of new telcos to come into market. You know, those days, um, you know, Telstra was, obviously Telstra even now is mm. the biggest player, but a lot of new telcos emerged during those days, the M2 evolution into a And OneTel and all those sort of fast growth, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, you had the telco in a box, the M2, which grew from nothing to a couple of billion dollar business, the focuses, mm-hmm. you know, the many other, you know, telcos which grew and turned into a, a real major businesses in Australia. So a lot of those things gave me an opportunity to work 
um, with this particular business. And when they started expanding out of India, you know, I kind of, you know, was hiring people and expanding from, you know, like each year as it rolled, you know, we had hundreds of people working and clients across just not Australia. I mean, I mm. had a lot of clients out of UK and US learning from those really made me a far more a learned person than I was. So just kind of the hunger when the opportunities were knocking, I suppose the only thing which I probably was very fortunate in getting was the, the preparedness to take on whatever comes and the willingness to convert those little avenues and opportunities into real success. And that comes down to your application, I suppose. And um, it's not a rocket science, uh, you know, mm. you know it's, it's something like very basic committing yourself, devoting yourself and making sure that you understand the client's perspective of what the benchmarks um, are set by the particular client and how do you really meet those uh, standards and excel and keep the client happy. So I did those basic things uh, you know, in a, as efficient way as I can, which kind of really attracted my immediate um, uh, directors to kind of say, hey, this guy's showing a bit more interest than others mm are at the moment. So this guy is always the first one to come to work. He's the last one to leave. And he's always engaging himself over the weekend uh, because I used to write emails about, oh, look, we could do this better. We could do that better. I thought I had no skin in the game in terms of shareholding or whatever, but I had a lot of passion about saying, hey, we could do this better. We could, we could probably, you know, roll this one in this way. And that, I suppose, the interest which continued um, year after year and month after month kind of and they started saying, wow, this is amazing. We've got a guy who's absolutely committed mm. and is prepared to travel and relocate um, for the sake of work. So we should probably give him an opportunity. So as it happened, so within two years, they offered me um, a stake mm-hmm. in, the, in the organization, a small stake, uh, a profit sharing sort of an arrangement. Um, so, so that was my beginning of my career, to be honest. So um, I haven't um, had a, a luxury or, or an opportunity like some of the other uh, people on, on, on your show um, to have worked in a bigger corporate. So I haven't mm. had that exposure. Um, my first venture was pretty predominantly a small, small uh, business and then obviously grew very uh, dynamically and exponentially. Uh, but that has been my, my experience. And eventually, you know, I worked with them for about eight years. Mm-hmm. And I decided after having done good long eight years of, of, of um, service that, that they, they led an event which triggered me to you know, make a choice to start something of my own. So, yeah, just that was the first part of your answer, yeah. Yeah, and so some people see engineers and salespeople as kind of opposites. You know, one's very sort of uh, process-focused, the other's very sort of extrovert, often talkative, and, you know, obviously that's a simplification. But did you identify more as sort of the personality of your average engineer and sales was something you had to do because you were hungry and there was an opportunity? Or did you take to sales, you love talking to people, you really love that customer sort of aspect? Well, I think that, that that's a great question. I think being an engineer... It has helped me in, in, in basically putting processes because, I mean, this is very important uh, to understand the differences between a startup and an established firm. It is what follows what. Um, compared, like, does the function follow the structure? Does the structure follow the function? You know, when you're a small organization, you start functioning way before you put any structure. Mm. because, you know, you look at a cafe which starts, he's not going to come up with a structure of I'm the CEO and I've got a CFO <laughs> and I've got mm. now the operations manager and he's not going to do that. Mm. When you start a company, you're everything. Mm. You know, you're a cleaner before the, you open the, <laughs> the, the roller shutters and, and, and you're a boss when you're actually collecting cash and you're actually making a coffee, you're, you're an operator. Mm-hmm. So you're pretty much you're everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got you to kind of take that into effect. So what comes first? You know, in the, uh, in the smaller companies, you start functioning way better, uh, way sooner than you put a structure. When you kind of build a business to a certain level, then you have to put the right structure for it to sustain. Otherwise, it will collapse. So then you start defining people, then you start putting pillars, then you start defining the processes on saying, well, 
what do you expect out of each department and how do you name a particular department to be led by? Is that the captain? Is that the manager? Is that whatever it is? So that's the major, major differentiator. So that, that's, that's what eventually, you know, like um, you kind of have to make that call on, you know, at what level you start and when you start um, uh, thing, yeah. Yeah, and so you've come in, you're a student, you're working hard, working multiple jobs. Like you said, you kind of almost, you earned your equity, your profit share, you had a great eight-year fast growth, um, sort of, you know, rapid career ascension um, in that organization. But after eight years, you said you, you had the hunger to sort of strike out on your own and do your own business. So what was that moment that made you want to sort of strike out on your own after, again, a great eight-year run, but nothing's forever? And then what was it like the first 12 months, the good and bad, once you, you really went out on your own? Yeah, so I think, you know, in that eight years, I, I probably changed as a person. Uh, you know, when I started, I was in early 20s, so as I came down, I was about touching 30. And my views about life started to mature and, mm -hmm. and I started to think about, I suppose, creating value for shareholders, creating value for employees and and, you know, like the priorities, for example, what are your priorities when you run a business? Like my number one priority is my customers. Mm. Um, then, then is my employees. Um, then, then definitely my, my clients and my, my suppliers, my partners, and then my shareholders. Mm -hmm. You know, you kind of have to say, well, who is the number one priority for the business? You know, you've got to look after your employees so they then look after the customers. You know what I mean? Like, mm. And whereas in that chain of um, preferences, my, the people with more stake than I had, they had a very different view. They, they wanted to put the stakeholder interest way ahead of any employee's interest or, or I suppose, you know, the customer's interest. So, and that's quite fair because when you're an unlisted private company, you know, you're all there for profit. You don't, you don't want to build your employees beyond a point or, or mm -hmm. give them the support function, um, which is beyond, uh, and, I, I, and that's where we started to kind of really have different views about sustained growth, um, sustained uh, support uh, systems mm -hmm. and ecosystem to manage that. And I started to realize that I got to build my people and my people then need to be a part of the business in the long run for us to really become a much larger force in whatever we were doing. Mm. I suppose that was not their interest they wanted mm -hmm. to run the business to make profit uh which is fair enough and mm -hmm. uh and i had very thin um you know interest in that organization so i might you know i said look you know at the end of the day it was a nasty um uh, uh exit uh, it was in a please they, they didn't shake hands or put garland, <laughs> garland or anything yeah. uh, they literally you know literally said see you later and then dropped me in the middle of nowhere so i had a kind of <laughs> eject out of it so it kind of came as a shock to me to to me and my and family did they, um were they again just a fundamental philosophical misalignment like you said they prioritize the shareholders you wanted to prioritize the customers and you know the employees suppliers ahead of that or was it you know i guess because you know i guess why or, or was it you were wanting to make changes they didn't want to make or again what was the, the yeah biggest... a whole lot of it yeah a whole lot of it i think um um you know you, you basically if i could say what is the real preference of the company? It's about long-term, but what are your investment points? Where are you going to invest your time, energy, effort? So I came around enhancing, upskilling staff, investing mm -hmm. for them, putting a, an options for them to be a, a real, um, I suppose, the shareholders of the business too in some small ways. They feel mm -hmm. that they own the business and start contributing because you're in a very competitive environment, Derek, and... Um, I always believed your assets are your people because people mm. build businesses mm. um, and you can't undermine the assets, the true assets, which are the people, at least in the early stages, you know what I mean? Was there and also a mindset shift? Because it's ironic, they actually did invest in you, right? They gave you equity, they invested in you and you were obviously not single-handedly, but you were a big part of that growth. But then once they were big, like you said, that the structure changing as the form changes, they kind of, they went away from the thinking that actually, in a sense, got them big in the first place and made you want to stick there and, and sort of help. That's right. That's a great observation. That's right. Because 
when when they offered something to me that what they offered was nothing significant because there was no business as such i had to set the business so i can't i was just offered a plain ground saying go and build if mm. you can build. um and and there was a lot of hard work over many years which kind of really built something which which made which made money but when actually the the tree is built and it's got the fruit coming out hanging out mm. splitting profits then is a real <laughs> real um thing to share and they were not willing to share that portion of it with the broader mm. employee base who were putting a lot of hard yards and effort. And not just that, the infrastructure, mm. um, you need all of that to really retain people. And, and, and I was pro investing in technology, investing mm-hmm. in infrastructure, investing in people, investing in a number of those things, I suppose, in brand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was not they 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 preferred doing you know and and there was a i realized very shortly that look um it's not a battle i'm going to win at any stage so um so eventually when um then when the discussion happened um you know i was asked to leave straight away mm-hmm. um in 2009 so and then you know it was you know real hard um uh face uh for a good two years for me to kind of what do I do? Do I get back to corporate? I've got plenty mm-hmm. of experience and, and, and what should I do? Because you, as you rightly say, look, you've grown so quick in the early part of your career without too much struggle, I suppose. You did work hard, no questions. But being employed and you doing a good chunk of activity was just doing everything now. So you're, when you set up a business, you know, you're, you're answerable, you're accountable, you're responsible for everything you do. From your strategies to your execution, the only one to blame is yourself. Mm. So it's a massive shift in your thinking. You can't point a finger at anybody else but yourself. <laughs> and and that what was, was that a, first business? What what was the nature of that first business in two thousand and nine that you sort of started? Well, I set up a company. So just after that, uh, um, you know, but within a year's time, and I did I did kind of for six eight months. I did contemplate about. Um, what I should do and so on and so forth. So I did start as something small uh, in India, which did not mm-hmm. really do well, but it, it kind of led me to come back on shore fully and uh, because mm-hmm. I was partially living out of India, though I was mm-hmm. working for an Australian company. Um, I came back and I said, look, you know what? Um, I should simply focus on what I do best. And uh, I, I started a company called Thought World. Mm-hmm. Um, Thought World um, was mainly a customer acquisition uh, marketing company, um, which led to contact center d- driven um, um, customer acquisition business, uh, which was set up in 2010. Like and appointment setting, lead generating, that type yeah, of thing. No, yeah. yeah, so I went into a niche, you know, where um, people were not doing much into the SME space. No one did telemarketing much into SME. It was a lot harder mm-hmm. to do tele- telesales into SME space, especially in the fuel card segment. Mm-hmm. No, no one was selling fuel cards. So I picked up something which people never heard of or did something like that. So I, was, I, I, I took that opportunity to set um, that and then also um, the electricity side, the energy side of acquisitions mm-hmm. uh, for that stage, an emerging uh, energy retailer. Um, so we started building both Resi side and the SME side to complement each other mm-hmm. as the first way of it. So um, interestingly, um, one of the learn- learnings out of that when I started was a lot of unknown factor. I mean, business is all about elimination of risk. An entrepreneur mm-hmm. is meant to eliminate the risks. Mm-hmm. But as you set something up, you just don't know what side is going to hit you hard and when it's going <laughs> to hit you hard in terms of um, so we started a business, as I said, in 2010. However, just a few months into it, a um, few things really went backwards, Derek, um, mm-hmm. and we were in a massive debt, like debt to the tune of a million dollars. So we so it had two wings for the, for the business. One was the customer ac- acquisition side of it. The other side of it, we built a our own emerging um, uh, telco business, mm-hmm. um, wholesaling minutes out of M2. And uh, 
it launched its own mobile plans in partnership with M2, which was reselling Optus products like Telechoice did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Vodafone entered the market around that 2011. So just within a year of I just launched a, our business, Vodafone, you know, like those times, I'm not sure if you recall or not, but um, in 2011, you had a $99 unlimited plan. So not, you know, you can make as many phone calls as you mm. wish and you were paying a nine a $99 plan and, and Vodafone came up with a plan called Infinity. It was a $45 plan, gave exactly what Optus gave for $99 for a half price or less than half price or whatever. So interestingly, we went into a, so we're taking a lot of um, expensive handsets um, worth $500, $600 from, you know, from our wholesaler. So we purchased a lot of those handsets, putting a lot of money in, supporting our wonderful customers because you've got to give the, the handsets, as you know, mm. as part of the, mm-hmm. the plan. And uh, for when Vodafone disrupted the market, it disrupted a lot of businesses in, in Australian emerging telco space. And we're one of them to be disrupted. It's a big learning in my life. So it's sort of like an inventory financing. You had a lot of kind of yeah. debt well, in yeah. stock, but assuming you could sell it and turn it over, obviously it was fine. But when you were left with the stock because the market shifted, that's where there was, but you still got on the hook for the stock, but you haven't that got the, the sales exactly. to pay for the stock you, you bought. Exactly right. And we were targeting, you know, strategically a prepaid market. Mm. And people were saying, yeah, we'll take the handsets and they'll see this wonderful ad on TV and say, oh, well, why am I now paying? Mm double when I can get from Vodafone for 45 bucks. A lot of people took handsets, didn't return the handsets. It was a, an absolute process. Like we did all the credit check. We did mm. all the things which we thought are under our control mm. to say, well, if we've got the process right, we've got the right customers and all of that was checked. But there was something beyond um, which we couldn't really understand at that stage. And that was, you know, when there is a disruption, um, you know, your traditional way of thinking doesn't work. You've got mm. to think out of the box. And, you know, we were, we were one of the startups at that stage. We didn't really have those cognizance on how we're going to tackle customers not paying the bill on time, mm. you know, all of that factors. And um, the business within three months slipped into a very terrible financial position to the mm. point it led us to be, um, you, know, uh, you know, down in, 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 in debt big mm. time. So that was a point uh, in, in July to September 2011, if I can clearly remember. Mm-hmm. There was a choice. My other partner um, said, well, look, I'm, and he was a lot older. He's 60 plus, mm-hmm. very reputable person who had been in this business for a long time. And he said, oh, look, Neil, I don't think so. I can really be in this situation of stress and handle it in this way. My, you know, I, I probably prefer declaring bankruptcy and mm-hmm. hanging it up, you know. I, I remember very clearly, you know, thinking about what I should do because there's no way I'm going to repay money mm. of a million dollars uh, when the business is in such an early stage. And the many, many pundits and accountants advised me, like, mate, you no way on earth, you've never clocked a profit beyond $200,000 in your business. You're never going to make a repay the money back to the creditors. So you might as well just take up and accept the fact that you've, you've, you've failed. Mm-hmm. There's a learning in failure. Embrace that and just move on, you know. But somehow, you know, my family um, always kept saying, no, no, that's probably not the right thing to do. My father was very principled, Derek, and mm. he always said, face up your challenges, never run away from it. And uh, my wife was extraordinarily supportive and she said, look, you almost hit the bottom of the ocean. There's only one way you're going to go. And that's, mm. that means you're only going to go up. You're not going to go down any further. You, you've hit the rock bottom. Mm. It was quite encouraging and uh, was quite emotional for me to kind of gather the courage and say, you know what, I'm going to look up. And I went up to my creditors and said, look, I need a, a three-year debt agreement where I'll repay your money. And I was helped with, I got a help from a couple of senior people who I'd known in the past and they mm. came to the rescue and said, oh, Neil, but one thing for you, we can help you get the debt agreement, but if you default, that's it. You de- mm. You're not going to get a second chance. You're almost, you know, you, they're going to bury you under. Mm. And I had a personal guarantee. My house was put on caveat. 
Mm-hmm. Um, all that has happened uh, in the early first um, 12, 15 months of my entrepreneurial stuff. And, um, you know. And how did you feel at that moment? You've gone from this fast growth kind of rocket ship as an employee with some skin in the game, some equity, but, you know, essentially learning at the front lines without your personal house and sort of the shirt on your back at risk to doing something on your own. It seems to be good, but then it's come completely crashing down. What was your sort of thought process? Again, you're staying optimistic, you're strategizing, but at a personal level, having gone from that massive contrast, how did you feel sort of at that moment? Oh, well, look, it, it was it was absolutely disturbing. You know, there's no question about it. I was, I was eight months into my marriage um, and I have a rocky, rocky uh, situation. It is kind of, you wouldn't want to be there. It was, everything was falling apart. And mm. uh, thankfully, you know, I had an extraordinary support from my in-laws, um, mm. my wife, my brother. It stood like a rock, you know, and... Um, uh, we put everything we have in terms of our skill set, cash, to restart the business uh, uh, in October. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, and there was a lot of learnings for me from the past thing of, you know, understanding the whole life cycle of the business before making a decision. Though the intent was always right. But if you don't read the market, you know, they're like, if you're not aware of what's coming and you're not really in touch across the broader market, how you could be disrupted was a big learning for me in the early part of my, um, my, my, my career. So eventually we, we restarted the engine, uh, we pulled back, we, we've entered into a debt agreement mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of things which happened and I purely think it's more divine the way things changed post that mm. point because one decision I had to make is not to worry about the result. Mm-hmm. Just worry about what I do. Be in in complete uh, present um, uh, status and work about enhancing what I do, improving its process or product, and do do the best, and not worry about the end result. Mm. It changed a lot of my thinking because you know you always worry about the profit. You you worry about those things which kind of are probably beyond your point. So learning for me was look, let me focus on what I'm really good at doing, and not worry about the end result and distancing yourself from no matter what happens now because it's gone so far apart from what I thought my life could be that I'll have to accept good or bad, Mm. whatever comes. And embracing the failure with open eyes was a biggest turning point in my life, which is it crushes your ego. It crushes your thinking um, when when you fail and fail so big. Mm -hmm. And the learning is, you know, when you fail big, there's no way you can escape. Mm. You literally fall on your face. Uh, and, and that then really changed me as a person to really embrace things and accept whatever was coming. So, and then it was just the courage, which I, I couldn't take the bold decisions, though I knew a lot of facts before. I lacked that courage because I'm always thinking about, oh, this would affect that, that could affect this and always there was contingencies around being playing soft. And when you take away the emotions out of it and you're not attached towards the end result, you think about the real, real thing you want to do. And that's leaving the bigger, bigger, giving more importance to what you want to do versus what the end result is. So that changed everything. And so we went into the business and never looked back from that point onwards. There were a number of challenging situations we did arise later, but, the, the mindset was quite different. And, and I've learned that, you know, you're the, often the difference between the mind and the mindset is progress. So how prepared. So mindset has to be low because if your mindset is, is too high, you really can't combat um, your internal thinking because it's always saying this or that without actually reading the, the situation as the way it should be. So mm. reducing the mindset and, and increasing and giving power to the real mind to gauge the situation as it should be gauged, changed the whole thing about it. So we applied ourselves. And then, you know, like, you know, 2012, we were um, 12 and 13, BRW Fast Starters, number 68. Then with BRW, number, number six, fastest growing company. The, the next year, we're number 20. And then, you know, thankfully, the number of great things happened, Derek, and that, and when, to talk oh, me through some of that growth, so like you mentioned, in the Fin Review Fast Starters, 
doing 25 million annual uh, revenue, becoming the number six fastest growing new business in Australia. So again, from this, the pit of despair to, you know, one of the, you know, top 10 fastest growing new businesses in Australia, like you mentioned, obviously you were growing fast that whole time. What really kind of clicked? What was it the market? Was it the strategy? Was it the people? Was it, like you said, the mindset? What enabled that really rapid turnaround and growth? Yeah, in a, in a short answer, I think the combination of everything. I think one of the learnings of, of the first two, three years is the biggest dividend for an entrepreneur when you're actually seeking for work is more work. Mm. So if you do a particular job as a developer or as a salesperson and you, 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 you get your client saying, well, we need more sales. That's the best reward. So the biggest dividend for the work you do is more work. And if you just simply understand that, 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 that line and try and just focus on work to just do a better job at what you do and not worry about the list, um, you're pretty much on the right trajectory of, of the business. So that was my first part of my learning. And, and, and the second part was the commitment and consistency in which you do. So you, you absolutely have to be committed to what you do. You're going to fall, um, you know, thrice, four times, five times. Unless you're prepared to get up to six times, you're not going to win the battle. So that perennial passion, unconditional love for what you do um, has to be there. Um, you know, you don't want to be an entrepreneur if you're not prepared uh, to fail. You're not prepared to, again, stand up and embrace that pain and, and, and keep going forwards. Um, so... You know, those lot of those qualities would, 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 you know, you learn the hard way sometimes. Sometimes you're, you're blessed that you, you have your parents, your, your, your broader family will, will share those experiences with you. But for me, it was all hard way. I learned it the hard way. There was, no, there was no coaching. There was no mentoring. There was nothing. So I went in there and I, I, I fell quite a few times before I could gather, you know, gather myself and, um, and, and walk on the path I wanted to. So... And once you had that success, again, you're building up, you've got 200 team members. What were some of the challenges from that success? Because obviously there's growing pains. You've been through the struggle pains of a lack of growth, but you've also then going through the success. But then, like you said, challenges, change in process. You've been through rapidly scaling businesses. You've seen how, you know, there can be disagreements as well at scale. Um, so what were some of the challenges of your success? And like I said, bringing in more customers. Um, what were some of the hard parts during that the good time? I think... I think there's a number of it. I think uh, the first point is, look, in our se sector, which is a service sector, the first thing people would do because they would chase, for economic reasons, the offshore, the part of their job. Mm -hmm. We made a policy to be different. So we, we were, the, were probably one of the only ones, I suppose, um, to keep everything onshore. Mm. Um, we said, well, we'll will work and maintain all jobs here in Melbourne was a hard call. So which means you've got to source labor, train those labor at a most expensive cost being onshore and still work with a thin margin because we had a long-term view that, Hey, we, we want to be known as the most respected company here. And you can only do so by giving an excellent um, service to our customers and our clients. And the only way that would happen means you've got to retain work here and not chase profits. So we were profitable, but we're going to be more profitable if we had just taken a bit of a shortcut in going to any of the offshore countries, whether it's Philippines, whether it's India, whether it's South Africa or any part of it, because the cost of labor is a lot cheaper than it is here. So we took that hard decision. That's one part of it. Second part of it, we kept on investing in our people. So one of the factors why people leave work is they can't, see themselves growing in the organization. How much mm -hmm. growth you offer to people, how much you understand about what they want to do as well as part of their business. So enabling them, giving them the right training, giving them the right attention and giving um, scope to foster their own dreams to grow within the organization. So we have over 80% of our staff who are senior team members now have grown organically within the organization. So as I said to you before, you know, people are the true assets in the organizations. And, and I truly believe that, you know, whatever our business is today is largely because we've retained, um, you know, a large section of our people to stay within. So our attrition in our business is 
comparatively very low to many of the larger organizations um, who have far better infrastructure than we do and probably pay a lot better remuneration than we do. Um, so, you know, the number of those things, you know, um, where we've done the reverse of what some of the larger ones have done um, in terms of strategies. Um, the other one is also, you know, in, in the segment we're in, it's easier to sell a product versus sell a suite of products. Like we went with the choice in the Moore's market. We wanted the first ones to initiate complete choice for the consumers, which means, you know, you've got to train your staff on 10 different products versus training on one. <laughs> it's great for the customers because we thought, well, it's great for consumer if you can pick a retailer or a B retailer or a C retailer, mm -hmm. depending on your choice. But building that choice is hard because it costs you money for training people. Mm. So we said, no, 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 it's right for the customer. So let's embrace in bringing that choice to the market. So we, we did all those things, which number of our competitors didn't do. Like for example, you had an established businesses doing only comparison, but didn't do the other side of it when people were moving. So we, I took that part saying, why don't I bring that capability into this market and mix it up? And that's how the name came, comparison and connections as compare and connect. Um, yeah, so, so some, like you said, just a matching marketplace, compare all utilities, compare services and get the best price. They take a fee from the provider or a commission and they're just like a sort of uh, a marketplace for that. Then others just do the installation, right? They get leads from somewhere else, they get it. But So the big difference for you was putting those two together so it's a one-stop process, one-stop shop to provide the comparison then also all the way through to the final connection. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean... We, and that's the whole process of embracing uh, to do, I suppose, whatever needs to be done on both seg uh, segments of the market and do it in a very effective way of bringing new technology which consumes lesser time, accurate pricing, transparency, fully onshore capability, number of those things we've taken as part of the initiative and, and that's enabled us to grow year after year um, you know, in spite of whether it's COVID, whether it's the bushfire, whether it's the regulation changes, and no matter what has come challenging our businesses, in the, either in the early part or in the last couple of years, we've continued to achieve milestones uh, when others have not been able to, you know. And it, it's, a, it's a combination of a lot of those factors. So, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and, and so zooming out a little bit, to look more broadly, you know, what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? Um, what are Australian entrepreneurs doing well? Um, where are they behind other countries? Obviously, you've lived and worked in other countries. You've, I'm sure, come across other entrepreneurs. You've been involved in multiple businesses. So how do you sort of see Australia versus other parts of the world in that area? Yeah, look, I think over the last 10 years, there have been, oh, at least five years, there have been a number of inspiring uh, segments which have come out of uh, here. Um, whether it's in the fintech industries, buy now, pay later mm -hmm. uh, segments. I mean, Australians are leading from front. You know, I look at example as Atlassian, you look at Afterpay, mm -hmm. uh, Zip, uh, and many others. You know, that segment's now, if you look at 15 years ago, there was nothing to the standards, you know, when you had manufacturing, um, um, I suppose, mining. Uh, Mm. Uh, was, 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 was a major part of Australia, uh, what it did. But not, not this segment of, of fintechs coming in and causing the disruption. So I suppose, you know, that's the change I, I see. It's, it's quite encouraging to see what Atlassian's been able to do uh, across, across, um, across the, the global uh, market and as well as the Afterpay and now the Zip and, and the many others. Like, you know, mm. you, you have that bubble created you know and that then inspires other people to come and you know take um those risks but there's a massive difference you know before the biggest impediment for an entrepreneur is you know is one is the market itself mm -hmm. the second is the access to capital um so access to capital was a lot harder unless you were making money people wouldn't throw money at you uh on on a general basis uh, for you to you know explore and chase your dream and build I suppose, or a solid problem uh, in, the, in the society or in a community or in the, in the country. Access to capital now is far easier because of all these fantastic um, emerging businesses, what they've done, you know, and that's, that's a sign for us to uh, be very happy about that Australia is kind of embracing 
the sort of what happened in the Silicon Valley, what happened, you know, in the what happens in the in the in the, in the market like UK or the European markets, where there are now big big firms putting a lot of money into the um, uh, prop tech space, the fintech space. A lot of that is really emerging, which is a very very uh, positive sign. And I, I hope you know that that that's happened in our industries as well. Um, so there's a lot of uh, encouraging stuff. So I do see that has changed tremendously. Whereas before, 15 years ago, raising $10 million was a lot harder than what you could do today. You know, that's a big change because you access capital, everything else, you know, if you have a good idea and a good plan to, to execute on that. And the markets opened up as well. You look at what you could do now uh, with the e-commerce sites. You look at Kogan, you look at cash.com. Mm. whole things changed dramatically. Um, They were not that easy or feasible or they were there 15 years ago. Um, So a lot of that in every segment you take up, that's that's made a very pleasant impact. And it's quite encouraging for people to, you know, wanting to be an entrepreneur and and, and, and I suppose, you know, start their own, own business at any stage now. So it's a lot more easier than what it was, I suppose, 15 years ago. Yeah, so this has been a global trend, I suppose, towards, yeah, more entrepreneurs, more technology, more investment. And you would say Australia's kind of keeping up with its share of that, obviously, small country, small population. But you see from these success stories, Australia is holding its own and riding that wave, not being left behind, not ahead of the curve, maybe kind of keeping up with sort of the big market. Yeah, that's right. I don't think that's, it's not definitely not leading, but I suppose it's definitely catching up to mm-hmm. uh, the US markets and the European markets broadly. Um, you know, you still need to go a long way purely because you've come America's capital-driven uh, country, so mm. we're capitalist in the way they think about it. Hence, you know, there are apples. There are a company like Apple and Facebook mm. and Google can become a global company with the market cap what they have today. Mm. Unfortunately, in Australia, you get re-regulated so often. They don't let any any one company to reach that sort of you know, status, you know, even if you look at Afterpay, unfortunately, you know, they've been in and out of, I'm not trying to support Afterpay anything <laughs> yet. Today. Let, let, the, let the government do what they need to do. But as an example, you know, there's so much uh, interruption in regulation and re-regulation. Eventually, when you kind of keep changing the rule and the boundary and redefine the system time and again, it anyway, some, I feel it takes away the privilege of an entrepreneur having laid the foundation for that many years to embark something amazing for them to really take on the opportunity gets redefined again. So you, when you keep rewriting the script and rewrite the language, you rewrite the boundary, it's a lot hard for people to keep changing and adopting because it takes a lot of time, effort, money for people to keep doing that time and again. And that you can't attain a scale if it's redefined that often. And that's one of the drawbacks here because it's, Australia is very much, you know, my my view, it's very much a consumer-driven country. It's very much protecting the consumer, Mm. which is fine, great. And hence, you know, when something takes off in a big way, it's more often than not, they they re-regulate it and cap it so it doesn't become too big. Mm. Um, You know, I suppose, you know, the the, the politicians and the bigger people have to take (laughs) a measure on saying, well, do you expect Australia to dominate the world uh, in its disruptive uh, creations, um, and and if that's if that needs to happen, then how do you need to change your approach to its, I suppose, re-regulating? I mean, Afterpay is a classic example of it. Yeah, where they've sort of found a niche, they've grown, and then because of that success, the government says, "Oh wait, you know, is this a credit card? Is this unsecured credit? What's the thing?" And, and like you said, then the goalposts have sort of shifted away, and then by that time, who knows? Or then you know, will they be denied a license or will the bank squeeze them in or will they have to sell or will it you know, block their ability to do it? So, so being in a regulated sort of sector yourself, are there specific regulations that you think sort of hold back, you know, compare and connect being able to be a you know, roll out into more countries or, or things that would help where I think often when the government tries to help, it's by doing more, but where are aspects where the government could kind of do less, so to speak, and sort of help by being less, uh, less involved in some aspects? Oh, look, I think, Derek, one of the things I've approached, I've taken is, you know, regulation is part of the industry we're in. Mm-hmm. The only thing you can do is embrace this regulation in probably more um, quicker, agile way than any of my competitors could do. 
Um, so for me is, uh, well, we know it'll be re-regulated. Re it just happened about 12 months ago. Probably it'll mm -hmm. happen again five, six years down the line, mm -hmm. uh, down the lane. So how do I now build systems and process and business so we are agile? We're one of the first ones to adopt uh, what are the changes coming through. We're looking at international markets. So soon um, Compare and Connect will go beyond um, uh, Australia and embark its first international journey into New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm very pleased to share that with you. Um, so we look to expand uh, into other countries, as I mentioned. So New Zealand is being the first one and it's the closest one. So we are uh, very, very happy and pleased to, you know, uh, put our foot into NZ and, and embark, um, you know, that journey. Um, but we are always looking forward for new, new countries, new territories for us to, you know, do something um, as innovative as what we've done here in Australia. And so, yeah, that's a great point. So speaking on that, what does the next five or 10 years look like for Compare and Connect? You've mentioned New Zealand. Are there other markets? You've mentioned expanding products, verticals. Are there other sort of services, product, tech, marketplaces, add-ons that would sort of be a natural extension to what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely, Derek. I think, um, you know, for us, one of the segments we work is the Moore segment. So today, Compare and Connect uh, with our brand, Your Porter, is... Um, is one of the leading um, uh, service offering in the real estate space where real estate agents can easily embrace systems in, in connecting or disconnecting people moving into the property or moving out of the property. Mm -hmm. and, and that enables them to complete everything in a, under two minutes or, or five minutes, you know, between the electricity services, gas services, internet services, um, water services, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and other, you know, important services in the in the Moore's life cycle um, we we are working tirelessly and are very passionate about solving that entire move cycle of people you know when you actually move in or move out of the property there are 20 things you got to do and some of the basic ones are quite time consuming and are very essential ones and how do we really automate that service by making you know the consumer not to spend beyond you know five minutes is one of our major headline objectives and we're working very very um, um you know committed on that solving that part of the problem for the moors life cycle there's about one million moves in australia mm -hmm. and and we do a quite a large portion of that um, so we've got a great market share in that space and we continue to evolve that business and make it as automated um, as we can that's one part of it on the comparison part of it we're always there to kind of you know help people um, automate the, uh, the complex regulated uh, items which people can't understand, whether it's energy comparison, whether it's electricity and gas comparisons. Um, how do we make it easy and simple enough for people to really understand and embrace and switch to get the, I suppose, the ideal deal for themselves or a competitive deal for themselves? So we always are working on that part and we come a long way uh, from where we were 10 years ago today customers can come onto a website, click and, and connect on their own without having to talk to anybody on the phone, uh, which wasn't the case before. You know, you always had to talk to people to get services connected, but that's not the case anymore. So you'll see a lot of those um, changes uh, in next next two months. We're going to roll out a new brand new website. We're rolling a lot of campaigns educating people, telling them, take advantage of what we've built and how it will help you in understanding your expenses and take control of those expenses in a, in a far more easier way than ever happened before. So a lot of that has happening on both segments of the business. And how do you think Australia rates? Like say, again, obviously the niche you've sort of carved out and the simplicity, the five minute sort of single click, everything's sort of done. You know, is Australia ahead do you think of say like new zealand of other major markets in the ease of connecting disconnecting moving comparing um is it i mean it's hard obviously to speak for everywhere but but like do you see is that an area where with what you've done and your past growth obviously your, your success you've really hit on a pain point that's resonating with people and that's why the business is going really well on, on all sides of the process um but again is that something sort of you think australia is sort of ahead of or um, you know, there's even more, like, do you look to other countries for inspiration or do you, you're sort of making, you're at the forefront and sort of making up as you go based on what you, you see is best? I oh, know. I think that there are certain segments uh, of regulation where Australia is ahead and there are segments which it, it's not. Um, 
Um, for for example, you look at UK market. It's a mm -hmm. it's a far more advanced market than Australian market than than than, than the than the Australian market is. Um, and you see the New Zealand market. You know, it got deregulated uh, with many more players, but it's not been as well defined as Australia is defined at the moment. So um, there are pros and cons of, of, of every element of it. I mean, even in Australia, you see like Victoria, the way the regulation works is quite different to other states. You know, mm. uh, in Victoria, you know, it's called the default offer. Mm -hmm. You go to New South Wales, it's called the market offer. So each mm. state is treating its regulation in a, in a different way. And you look at Western Australia, there's just one retailer, so there's no, there's no comparison opportunity at all for the, for the energy customers. Mm. And so, so is the northern Queensland with this all Erebon Energy's one retailer there. So it's kind of broken in fragments. The pro and con, you look at America, for example, um, you've got 1 million moves in Australia, whereas America has got 40 million. So it's a much mm. bigger market, quite, mm. quite appealing. Um, and not all states are deregulated there. There's only a mm -hmm. few states um, where you can compete. But even if you go and, 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 and put yourself uh, and apply what you've done here to US, you're a far more bigger business than mm. what you are today. So we're looking at, well, where can we really apply what we've done here, continuing the learnings and, and exploring other, other parts of the world where we could be a more more a global business than a local business. So the, we are always looking out at you know other countries to I suppose uh, embrace uh, and continue this journey and learn and possibly uh, implement what we've learned here. So you know we can grow our businesses. So I can't really say there are areas where Australia has done better, mm -hmm. and there are areas Australia has mm. really done. It terribly you know <laughs> um so you just can't say everything's great and mm. everything's bad either it's kind of you know certain areas they've done well certain areas they haven't done well like and for example the nbn you know is a, is, a, is a classic example of it um um could could that have been better possibly um with the speed and the way it rolled out and how long it took and now 5g coming and challenging <laughs> far better than nbn and you look at some of the you know wider bigger markets you know they there's far faster internet than you have currently in australia at the moment so being a, a developed nation um could we have rolled out and been in a far better way the answer is probably yes but you know we can't we can't debate, debate about it yeah but there's always there's pros and cons but we'll look at we'll rather look at the good side of what's mm. there the, the bad side of it yeah Absolutely. And so just to finish off with, what advice would you give your 18 to 20 year old self? You've had highs and lows, you know, you've worked in other people's businesses, you've started your own businesses, you've you know, lived in different countries, worked in different countries, you know, so looking back with hindsight and obviously all the journey. And again, I'm sure you've got a lot of young staff on your team. So, so, you know, if that, if they were, you know, your young staff working in your office and hungry sort of uni students at 20 years old wanting to, to do their best, what, what would you sort of tell them? Oh, look, I probably would share a few learnings of my own, to be honest. And uh, the number one I said to you is uh, never be, be afraid of failures and, and, and embrace the failure because the failure is the biggest learning for you. What a failure uh, could possibly teach, you, you're not going to learn that if you're you know, going through a success phase. Mm. Um, it, it gives you a time to introspect and learn more about what didn't work. Uh, and that's the biggest revenue earner in terms of experience. Um, so that's number one. The number two is don't be really be focused on the, the profit side of it if you want to be a good entrepreneur. Um, you rather be focused on the process and the product and the experience. So if all those things are in the right direction, then the profit is the, the byproduct of it. It should never be the, you know, the, the go-to thing. I mean, you always have to have, a, you know, a clean visibility of where the business is trending. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying don't, don't have, uh, I, I suppose, uh, a view on that, but don't make that as the only uh, way to grow your business because that might not lead you to the right way you, you, you want to go. The third thing is, especially people starting, is um, you, you, when you 
when you, if you really want to be an entrepreneur and you want to run your own business, I wouldn't recommend people to join a big business. You know, I rather, what matters most is which person you work for in the early days and that makes far more impact than, you know, what brand you're associated. The reason is in the smaller businesses, you're forced to do multitasking. So you learn every aspect of the business. You come across the whole life cycle of the business. If you're joining a big business, usually everything is defined. Mm. Your creativity, there's no scope for that for you to apply. Can I, you know, change this to this and make it work? You don't get that freedom in the larger organization because everything gets defined. And once it gets defined, you're just a part of a process. You can't define the process. So you'd rather work where you can, I suppose, define the process, which is the small organizations, which are far more nimble, will give you far more flexibility. And who you work, who's your first boss, who's your first manager, makes a huge difference because you get to learn a lot if that person is a real and inspiring one. It's hard. Um, so because you need to have all of that. So I, I, if, if you really want to be an entrepreneur, then you know, you'd rather work for a growing company where you can get to learn different facets of the business rather, rather than a particular process. Um, and, um, you know, there that comes with the, the things which, you know, I've learned over, over a course of um, a few years. And in um, always, you know, when you're learning, keep your mindset low. Don't, don't go into a process thinking you know because the moment you think you know, you're not learning as well as you should. So as I said to you, the, the difference often is that the, the difference between the mind and the mindset is the progress. So if you want to be progressive, and the key thing is, and I always categorize everything into three dustbins or the three baskets. <laughs> you know, the three baskets I define as, you know, whatever you do, you've got to categorize is, are you doing things which are useful? Are you doing or you're doing something which is entertaining? or you're doing something which is useless. <laughs> so if you want to be progress, let the larger percentage of things you do are useful. And if you're in that, then you're always progressive about it. And um, so it's allocating in those three baskets where whatever, whatever way um, you, want to, you want to shape yourself and never, never, never shy away from chasing your, your dream because if you think you truly believe, you know, you want to do something, you know, go for it. Don't, don't be scared of failing, um, you know, because failure is one of the biggest teachers you'll ever, uh, you'll ever realize, you know, unless you get a bit more older. Um, so embrace that failure with open arms because um, it'll, it'll, it'll be, I suppose, a priceless uh, experience to, 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 to learn and, and to grow in life. Yeah, and in some ways, when you look back, do you think that if you didn't have that big failure in the first business, you wouldn't be where you were today? Like, say, if it had just been a moderate success, didn't make a lot of money, didn't lose money, just kind of, you know, you would have just kind of still been potentially doing that business versus having a big down and then a big rebound sort of back up with all those lessons from the failure? Yeah, no, I wouldn't change anything. Look, I've, I've been through some real challenging times, Derek, and when I look back, as I say, you can only connect the dot backwards. And every failure I've been through where I thought why the hell I was hit with this particular problem or a challenge, I've realized in time to come that one of the probably the best things I could ever imagine that to happen to myself because they really either got me to the next of it or changed my fundamentals or changed mm. my thinking. It really shaped me to be what I am today. And I wouldn't have been a person I am today if those things had not happened. Um, so my every failure, hand on my heart, has really taught me some real amazing stuff, um, uh, lessons which I'll cherish for the rest of my life. So, um, uh, you know, the failure, when, when you're hit with that, it is really telling you that there's something need to change. So you can't keep your eyes and ears closed when that's the, the output. So you just need to embrace it, take two steps back and, and reapply yourselves with a different, different, different mindset altogether and, and, and take it on. 
So, no, I wouldn't change anything. You know, they actually have made me the person I am. In fact, has made me a lot better person than I mm. was 10 years ago. So, absolutely, yeah. Excellent. And do you have any final words, thoughts, comments you'd like to leave the audience with? No, I think, you know, absolutely be courageous. You know, I've always learned, um, you know, five basic principles of the journey uh, of, of an entrepreneur, and I'm happy to share that with you. The first thing um, is... Always be righteous. You know, the fundamental thing about, you know, success is are you on the right path, um, which means um, are you got the company structure legally properly done, the partnership, the shareholding agreement done, have you raised your capital, like, righteous part, you know, in, in mm -hmm. scientific terms, whatever you can take it as, because it's very important to have a right company structure um, and a right shareholding structure. If it's all owned by you still, Make sure you, you have something legally covers you as a person. The second step is the courage. N never shy away from, you know, taking bold decisions, which will support what's right for the business. It's not about doing what's popular. It's not about doing what's easier. It's about doing what's right. And you need to have the courage to, to take that. The third thing about being conscious and being aware about the market changes and setting your priorities right. You can never be aloof, uh, you know, just locked yourself into a room and you're an entrepreneur. You've got to know what's <laughs> happening in your industry because mm. you could be disrupted anytime. And my tip to anybody is you'd rather disrupt your own business than somebody else disrupting you. <laughs> so, and you can only do so if you're aware of what's going mm. on around. So awareness is quite important. And the fourth factor is I would say keep yourself mentally, physically healthy and happy because you're going to be hit, hit with many challenges and it's a lonely journey when you're an entrepreneur, regardless of the support you get. You always have to be thinking ahead and preparing yourself towards, uh, you know, various situations which will kind of, you know, challenge you every now and then. And so keep your mind, uh, keep your body and, 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 and also keep your intellect, which is spiritual part mm. of your thing, happy, active, and healthy. That's very important. And last but not the least, there's always the fifth element, which, you know, you call it as luck, you call mm -hmm. it as fortune. You can't take that away. So, you know, always that fifth element is there and, and you've got to have to take it with a grain of salt and say, well, you know, if that comes in a, in a good way, great. If it doesn't come, it's all right. You know, mm. you can't ignore the fact. In spite of you do everything, sometimes you don't get the results you wish. So don't get disappointed. So there's always an element of fortune. Acknowledge that and be strong enough to move on to the next chapter. So there are five things which I think are very important for an entrepreneur to keep in mind. Excellent. I love it. Thanks so much, Neil. Thank you, Derek. See you, mate. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email Derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.